Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 519 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and boy oh boy, do we have a loaded show for you today? After all, it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be here to talk NXT and AEW, but not only will we be covering both brands, we will be providing you with an AEW full gear ultimate preview at the conclusion of today's show. We will break down every single match on the card best we can with three hours of television programming still to come on Friday. But we will break down the card, give you predictions for every match, and of course, a pre-show expectation grade. On the way into today's program, allow me to kick it off, as I always do, with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So please remember to go ahead and leave those five-star ratings for us across Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. But this weekend in particular, because we have AEW full gear, we will have pre and post-show polls available for all of you to vote in and provide your pre-show and post-show grades. We, of course, will read those on our Instant Analysis podcast coming up Saturday night as soon as AEW Full Gear goes off the air. A reminder, again, to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You will get bonus audio throughout the week, exclusive news posts on Fridays, and coming to you special this Friday will be an AEW full gear go home show, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling. We're going to bring it up to you on Friday. In fact, we're going to do two shows, one for SmackDown, one for AEW, but because so much is happening with Rampage and Collision on that night, There probably will be some go-home moments that need to be discussed and perhaps even some last-second changes in predictions for the show. Again, you can get that, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, as mentioned, we have an absolutely loaded show for you today. We're going to kick things off with NXT because it is really just the two hours of NXT that we need to cover. Then we will talk AEW, everything that does not directly have to do with Full Gear, and we will wrap up the show with your AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview. That will include a number of elements, of course, from Dynamite Collision and Rampage. There are timestamps in the episode description, so you can jump around if need be, especially if you happen to be listening to this, perhaps Friday night or Saturday at any point before Full Gear, and you want a quick Ultimate Preview, there will be a timestamp for that in the description. You can jump around, but as always, I hope you all listen to this entire show. As mentioned, we are going to kick things off with NXT, and again, AEW, AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview coming up in a little bit. But we did have Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams backstage with Trick explaining they both know the punch last week was accidental, and it easily could have gone either way. 
Mello was a bit wary of that by his facial expression, but he did agree ultimately. And he reiterated he did not attack Trick. And he also said a lie detector proved that he was telling the truth. He ignored a question from the interviewer about what lie detector he took that proved that. He just said, hey, the beef is squashed. I'm going to have Tricks back at ringside for his match. Williams left and Hayes kind of gave like a serious look before eventually smiling. So we had Trick Williams against Joe Coffey in the men's Iron Survivor qualifier. Trick did a really nice combination against the ropes. He also hit a Uranagi. Mello pulled Wolfgang off the ropes, but he did it as Trick was about to hit him with a discus lariat. That sent Williams flying over the ropes. He then lifted Trick, but Joe came back at them with a tope suicida, and Mello dodged it rather than pushing Trick out of the way and saving him. Williams then ate Glasgow send-off in the ring and a German suplex as well, but he countered all the best for the bells with a pump knee and got the win. It wasn't perfectly timed the knee, but it still hit as the finish to the match. And I just need to reiterate, Trick absolutely needs to get a better finisher. It makes no sense for a guy his size to be doing a pump knee when he's strong, he's lengthy. He can do a million other different moves that are way better as finishers than a basic pump knee that like a million different wrestlers do. Now, Booker T was firmly in the camp that Mello nearly cost Trick the match on purpose. But Vic Joseph disagreed, and obviously Vic is the babyface play-by-play man, so you have to take what he says into consideration. Mello did seem to legitimately support Trick, mostly after the bell, but he kept staring back at the Iron Survivor graphic, seemingly wanting a spot for himself. And that's good storytelling across the board here. From the opening interview to the match, it's clear they're telling us as viewers Something nefarious is going on with Mello, and his intentions are not purely to have Tricks back, but Williams is completely oblivious to it. The agency of this match in particular was well done, strong storyline continuation throughout, and unlike last week where Mello heavily overacted in that main event segment, this week it was all pretty much perfect. He did exactly what he needed to do to tell the story with his facial expressions. Uh, Braun Breaker backstage said that he had no remorse taking out Von Wagner, So Dijak showed up bragging about qualifying for Iron Survivor while Breaker was recovering from the announce table shot. Dijak assumed Braun would get a qualifying opportunity because he gets everything he wants in NXT. So he was basically just getting ahead of it, saying he's the one guy Breaker can't break. Braun shot back that Dijak better stay out of his way or he'd have him begging for retribution. Great line. Probably Dijak's single best promo segment since rejoining NXT, I would say. This is a guy you can get behind, not the 80s movie villain sitting in a dungeon wearing big glasses or whatever. There was also a little melodramatic video package about the blossoming friendship and familial even relationship and story of Wagner and Mr. Stone from their first day in the Performance Center through last week's match. They watched the video backstage with Vaughn rubbing the scar on his head. I guess the idea is it's still going to give him pain. Stone invited him over for dinner with his wife, and Wagner was all about it, asking to make sure he had two full plates. But then he said under his breath, asparagus sucks, which was hysterical and maybe the funniest thing that Von Wagner has ever done. But it's also false because, look, I'm a picky eater, but asparagus is good if you cook it right, if you season it right. Granted, I didn't try it until I was like 35, But once I did, I said, why was I not eating this? It's delicious. You got to get a sauce on there. You got to get some salt and pepper, you know, maybe uh, roast it in the oven a little bit or put it on the grill. But I promise you, asparagus is tasty if you cook it right. And you guys know how I feel about Vaughn. But credit where it's due because I was actually entertained by this. So there you go. Uh, The Supernova Sessions had Alpha Academy as guests. 
Noam Dar shit-talked Akira Tozawa losing the Heritage Cup match, with Tozawa saying he would have won it straight up. Otis was heavy flirting with Flash Legend throughout. They all argued with each other. Chad Gable got them to shoosh, saying he had the next challenger for the cup ready to go. Otis started dancing and thrusting. Dar got really excited, only for the Academy to run down the challenger's accolades. And as they eventually went down that list, it pretty much turned out that it wasn't going to be Otis, but rather Gable challenging for the Heritage Cup. Then Dar swung, Gable headbutted him, and the faces stood tall to end the segment. This was a brilliantly funny segment on its own. All eight of them played their parts perfectly. I can't think of a single one who didn't impact the hilarity of the segment and make it more entertaining than it would have been if they were not there. And I'm talking about Oro Mensa sitting on the couch, Takara Jackson's facial expressions behind, uh, Akira Tozawa first giving the promo, then his expressions, and Maxine Dupree. We will talk about her in a moment. Uh, Gable going after the Heritage Cup is immensely interesting. And I could definitely see him being the next main roster guy to do an excursion down in Orlando, really with all of Alpha Academy, as you saw the last couple of weeks. Bringing that cup to Raw would only add to the Academy hijinks on the show, and it gives Gable something to do as Triple H, I suppose, decides when he's ultimately going to take the Intercontinental title off of Gunther. I'm definitely excited for this match next week, and I mentioned Maxine Dupree. In this segment, I mean, you probably want to go back and look at this because... Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! Uh, Roxanne Perez fought Lash Legend in the women's Iron Survivor qualifier. Metaphor interfered early, so the referee ejected them from ringside. Roxy hit a really cool, like, roll-through face buster, I guess. I'm not really sure what you would call it, but it should be a signature move for her, or a secondary finish or something. Awesome move. Uh, Perez avoided a double moonsault with Jakara Jackson returning to the ring to distract the referee. Kiana James then grabbed Roxy's arm. That allowed Legend to hit a huge boot, and she added like a choke lift powerbomb for the upset victory. We literally on Tuesday, like two days ago, spoke about the ringside ejection person returning, resulting in a finish being absolutely ridiculous because there's no punishment for the individual. And here we got it again. I'm immensely frustrated with the stupidity of that finish because all they needed to do, if you want to run that finish, you have Shawn Michaels suspend or find that person in a segment later. You have Metaphor get told that by an interviewer or commentary mention it. Hey, we just heard that Shawn Michaels has suspended Jakar Jackson for two weeks, whatever the case might be. You got to do something. Otherwise, the ringside ejection doesn't mean shit. They got to work that out across all of WWE. Now, that complaint aside... I was actually really impressed with this match. There's two women's matches, this one and another in AEW that I thought was really high quality. Um, But I was especially impressed here because we saw clear improvement from Lash Legend. They put her on TV way too early before she was ready initially. But now she's clearly gotten some seasoning and training, both in NXT, probably doing the loops around Florida. She looks like she belongs. The ceiling is immensely high for her. I really do hope that there's a last chance qualifier for Iron Survivor because Roxy not being in this match would be ridiculous. They need talent like her involved from a wrestling standpoint. She doesn't have to win it, but she should be involved in it. 
Uh, but this way exceeded expectations in terms of in-ring. And like I said, I'm going to say the same thing about an AEW match later in the show. Gigi Dolan fought Ariana Grace. Later backstage, Kiana was bragging about costing Roxy in the women's locker room. Gigi said that she did it because she can't beat her. A bunch of faces and heels started arguing. Gigi took exception to Ariana's like beauty queen shtick. So she challenged her. And Grace had a funny line wondering, why does everything here have to end in a fight? Which is, of course, funny because it's professional wrestling. The referee caught Grace cheating on a fall with her feet on the ropes. Dolan, as Grace was arguing, caught her with her finisher. I don't think it has a name for the win. After the bell, Grace put her crown back on and waved to the crowd while crying on the canvas, which was really funny. Paint by numbers match, but Ariana's personality got this to shine once again. And at least Gigi was in a match. We haven't seen her in weeks. I presume they're going to get involved in Iron Survivor going forward. The tag team championships were on the line. Chase, you defending against D'Angelo family. On social media this week, Andre Chase was called into Shawn Michaels' office as controversy just shrouded Chase U. Then as NXT began, they all fought through paparazzi in the parking lot with Andre Chase saying he had no comment. He also said he was fully cooperating with the investigation and he was just there to defend the titles. Then Vic Joseph told Booker T that what's going on at Chase U is bigger than Jim Harbaugh and Michigan. And what's pretty funny is right as we taped this podcast, uh, Harbaugh actually and Michigan just accepted the three-game suspension from the Big Ten, so he'll be carrying that out. The NCAA suspension remains ongoing. But anyway, back to wrestling. The Chase U student section was also shown upset while reading the school paper, but somehow, despite that, commentary didn't know the story. They don't know the controversy, which didn't really make sense. If it's literally written in newspapers in the crowd, then Vic Joseph should be able to grab one and see what's going on and inform us as viewers about it. But it left it intriguing for us as the viewer. But again, it just didn't really make sense. Stax took a hip toss, Tope Konhiro. Chase was all disheveled, both the way he looked, the way he operated throughout the match as well. He cannonballed Tony D'Angelo in the corner, then threw Stax into him with an exploder suplex. Chase then ate an assisted flying European uppercut. Duke Hudson sprung himself over the ropes for a single motion German suplex. Real inventive move by him. D'Angelo ran him into the steel steps, then ate a somersault from Chase at ringside. As he did the Chase U stomps, the student section left chanting walkout. Chase then ate a spine buster and bada bing, bada boom with the titles changing hands. Now, the switch was obvious from the second Chase U entered, just given Chase's state and the entire storyline. This was actually a terrific match at 3.75 stars B+. Great action both ways and a clean finish. Not that inspiring of a move changing the titles back after only a two-week reign, but it's clear there's a storyline concept ahead. With the family still faces, hopefully this opens the door for the Garzas, as I've mentioned a few times. The division needs to get back to the level that it used to operate at, you know, four years ago or so. It's been lackluster for the last two plus, but they have the talent and they have the teams down there to make that happen. Later backstage, a bunch of face tag teams were watching the show, talking about becoming the new number one contenders. Josh Briggs was distracted, texting on his phone. The Garzas jumped in, wanting to be involved. Then the family came in, celebrating with the titles and the woman who's been around them recently. The Garzas tried stepping up, but D'Angelo clowned them for getting their asses kicked by the Creed brothers. Then the woman said that they'd handle it next week, and tonight was about celebrating. She had perhaps the worst fake Italian accent I've ever heard. Just immensely poor and ridiculous. It does seem like she's now going to be part of D'Angelo family, and it looks like she's gotten a name, but they haven't said that on TV yet. So it's all just like, now there's a woman with them, and who is she, and what does she do? 
We don't know, but what we do know is she's not actually Italian. Like That's the way it comes off to me, at least as a viewer. Late in the show, Chase walked back out into the parking lot where he told the waiting paparazzi that he was distracted and devastated to have lost the titles, but he didn't have any further comment for them. JC Jane pulled up, giving him an escape out of the parking lot in a car. And again, it just remains strange that so many people know about this controversy, but we as viewers do not. I'm wondering, like, are they going to do a betting scandal? Maybe throwing in the towel on Thea Hale's match. He did that for a reason. Like, he literally threw it to get money so he could finance the university or something like that. It could be more directly related to Harbaugh and cheating, but I guess we'll find out. Wesley fought Baron Corbin backstage. Dom ran into Corbin with the heels getting along because Corbin had this match scheduled. Wes then ran into Ilya Dragunov. They had a good-natured conversation with Ilya promising to watch his match and Wes telling him to watch his back from the rest of the roster. Lee said he wasn't going after the main NXT title, though, because he had a lot of other things in mind. Lexus King later approached Corbin, who said King taking out Williams was a big, brilliant move. Lexus didn't admit it, but he did say mission accomplished and that he'd be watching. The first two segments here were solid, but the third, that absolutely should be addressed next week by Trick because there's no reason for him to not have seen that. It doesn't mean that Lexus is telling the truth, obviously, but that statement cannot be ignored. It seems like he's taking credit for something that he didn't do more than anything else. So Corbin caught West flying outside with a perfect deep six at ringside. They had a great run from there, literally bouncing back and forth. Dom came down with Corbin, pulling him into the line of fire as Wes hit a tope con hero. As Lee ran back inside, Corbin immediately caught him with end of days for the win. Dragunov ran down to save Lee from a beating, but Corbin countered Torpedo Moscow into end of days as well. Ilya grabbed the mic afterwards saying Baron made a grave mistake and he gave him a title match at deadline. Now the match on its own was fire with a great reaction across the board, 3.5 stars B, but the post-match with Dragunov was exceptional. End of Days is such a great finisher, and the way he countered Torpedo Moscow was straight up perfect. It's fair to expect we get a tag team match involving these four guys at some point before Deadline, and the faces will probably come out on top of that one. Deadline is shaping up to be a hell of a card, especially if both of these matches are on it. Lyra Valkyria was watching footage of Zia Lee for training purposes with Robbie Brookside, who is an NXT trainer, and someone else that didn't recognize, I'm just gonna presume they're also an NXT trainer, uh, Lyra then said she got a text from Zaya, which was an invitation to a Warriors tea ceremony. Somehow this showed up on the TV screen automatically, the invitation, just like when MJF FaceTimes Adam Cole, just happens to be there. They don't need to connect via Bluetooth or anything, just suddenly it's on the screen. So Valkyria shows up at this tea ceremony, puts on a traditional top, gets a respectful bow. Zaya said that her warrior spirit has come alive and she wants to be noticed. The tea represented Valkyria breaking down over time and ultimately crumbling in their match. Lyra refused to drink it, so Zaya promised to show no remorse. Do Irish people not drink tea? Because, I mean, you would think that she'd be all for that tea. I would be. I didn't get that at all. But this was such a simple concept. Match preparation. It's not shown enough, right? Loved how they started out with that. The tea ceremony was actually the first chance in maybe her entire career that Zaya's been able to speak in a true extended fashion. It is fair to question her getting so much character development on NXT despite being a main roster superstar in a main roster feud right now with Becky Lynch, why is this not happening on that show? Also, if you're going to assume that Zaya loses to Becky, which I think is a fair assumption, and then you're going to assume she loses to Lyra in a title match, which is also a fair assumption, then this is a lot of buildup 
for Zayed to just take consecutive losses in as many nights in one week. I'll be really interested to see how she's booked next week and going forward because she definitely has a presence and some talent, but creative absolutely has to get it right, especially if all of this build leads to her losing two consecutive matches. Brawling Brutes fought out the mud. The Brutes tried 10 beats, but OTM actually stopped them cold and dominated early. Ridge Holland hit a swinging Uranagi on Lucian Price, who then slammed Butch into Holland. Booker T compared OTM to Harlem Heat without kind of saying it exactly. Butch moonsaulted Scripps and Price at ringside as Holland pulled Bronco Nima off the ropes for a powerbomb before combining with Butch for an assisted elevated DDT and the win. This was a blast and a real uh, pleasant surprise. OTM has improved significantly already from their debut, and the Brutes remain strong. They should be legitimate contenders in the main roster tag team title picture, and if they're not going to be, then maybe they should actually win the NXT tag team titles. The Brutes have really come together as a team. Both Butch and Holland are doing good work and benefiting from it, and yeah, I want Sheamus back, and I'd like them all to be together, but even as a tag team on their own, it's definitely working. Joe Gacy got his latest hand cam promo standing on top of the WWE Performance Center saying he's a ghost wandering the halls of NXT trying to find his purpose. He said he doesn't fit in and he might be unhinged or a maniac, but this is where he needs to let go. Then he threw the camera off the roof onto the pavement. Not only does Gacy continue to do his best character work in NXT with this version of the gimmick, this was the best promo maybe he's ever done. I've always disliked his gimmicks, not him as a talent. So I'm glad to see this finally coming together, but I do need to see what the presentation looks like when it comes to in the ring and what the character is actually going to be. Because right now, it's very Bray Wyatt-esque. A lot of words, not really saying that much. And lastly, Eddie Thorpe backstage said he's been absent because the strap match with Dijak depleted him physically and mentally, but he's 100% now and wants to show the Hall of Famers who are choosing the Iron Survivor qualifiers that he's ready to go. Drew Gulak came up talking shit, but Thorpe said he wouldn't be broken. It seems obvious that this is going to be booked in the next week or two. So top to bottom NXT this week, I thought it was another exceptionally strong show. Shawn Michaels continues to do a great job booking this. Deadline coming up, it feels far enough away where the shows are not directly building to it in every single segment but at the same time, getting a lot of work done to improve that card. I'm going to be very interested to see what NXT looks like next week. I believe it was a taped episode due to Thanksgiving. So I want to know what it looks like next week. And then I'm very curious what the following week's NXT is going to be once they're back live again, because that's where you really need to inject life into the build for Deadline. Tickets are selling well, but not incredibly well for it. And obviously, WWE would like to have these shows do well, the premium live events for NXT when they go on the road. I don't believe that another one is scheduled between Deadline and Stand and Deliver, which is going to be WrestleMania weekend in April. Maybe they throw one in February stateside, especially since the main roster is going to be over in Perth for Elimination Chamber. I could see that happening. I'm just saying as of right now, there's not one scheduled, at least not that I'm aware of, that it's going to be scheduled. So Deadline needs to hit. It did last year. It was real impressive. They have an opportunity to do it again. The card is already immensely strong. With the NXT breakdown now complete, let's go ahead and move to AEW. Like I mentioned earlier, we're going to start by talking about everything that happened on AEW across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage that did not directly have to do with Full Gear. And then we will circle back and give you your AEW Full Gear Ultimate Preview in the third segment of today's show. Straight up, just I want to talk about the Dynamite crowd on Wednesday night. They were pitiful, not just for a go-home show, but 
one that had enough good segments to excite them. They did not deliver. AEW goes to Ontario, California because of the Young Bucks, but it's now officially time to stop. It was just awful. Rampage was mostly the same as it has been the last, I mean, what, year at this point. Collision had its moments, but was not a show that I felt I absolutely needed to see Saturday night. And then when I watched it on DVR, it just kind of told me exactly why that was the case. Fine show, couple noteworthy moments, but again, just doesn't live up to what Collision used to be when it debuted and certainly what Dynamite is on Wednesday. We're actually going to start with Collision, Tony Khan and Brian Danielson in a not promoted announcement. Imagine my surprise said that Danielson will be wrestling at all in. <laughs> so my first thing is, why wouldn't he be? And why are you making a talent announcement for a show nine months ahead of time? I'm actually going to criticize WWE in a very similar fashion for making an announcement that Logan Paul is going to be at WWE Elimination Chamber. But at least that shit is in February. That's like three months away. This is nine months away. It's wild. But that plus the pre-sale for all-in tickets and the way that was an announced announcement for Dynamite last week, it makes me believe AEW might be worried about selling as many tickets for all-in this year as it did last year, but they really should not be. I think they're going to do great. So it's just so odd that they're approaching it this way. But then uh, Khan and Danielson announced the Continental Classic, which is basically a G1-like round-robin tournament featuring 12 wrestlers. The finals are going to be three days before World's End, except on Dynamite, they changed it and announced that the finals would actually be at World's End. Danielson was then announced as the first participant. He had a bandage over one eye, and basically he was saying, it's going to look a lot better. Uh, once this tournament begins, I'll be fine. Brian got amped up. He screamed that AEW would put on the best wrestling tournament ever. Now, we asked Brian about the G1 during our interview, and for those who do not know, that's a tournament that New Japan Pro Wrestling puts on every year. And he said, look, at this point in my career, the fact that I'm retiring full-time, the fact that that is such an intense tournament, the way it is tra transpires over in Japan, I'm probably never going to be able to do it. I would not be surprised if his disappointment about not being able to do the G1 and his decision to retire led to the formation of this tournament in AEW. It sounds like an event in which Brian could pro possibly participate every single year because all it would really take is like a one-month commitment he could do that even when he's in retirement, even when he's wrestling a limited schedule. So there's hardly any question that Danielson is going to be in the finals of this year's event, probably against Kenny Omega, if I had to wager. It just depends on whether people from outside are available. But given it's backed up so close to Wrestle Kingdom, I do wonder about the participation of, for example, a Will Ospreay, just to name one person. Now, I was going to try to make the finals in Orlando when they did this announcement on Collision. It was going to be my first AEW show, but... Then announcing it as the semifinal kind of lessened my interest a little bit. It's just going to depend how it's shaping up and what those matches wind up being by the time they get to them. The entire deal came across for me as immensely tryhard, like forcefully attempting to inject fire into a relatively cold product as opposed to just naturally doing it with better creative. But maybe this will draw ratings. It's certainly more exciting than the Owen or many of the other types of tournaments that they've done before, what was not addressed was the point of it. Does the winner get money? Uh, number one contendership. A briefcase like they give in the G1, very similar but not exactly the same 
to money in the bank. Stakes are immensely important, one would imagine. And as of right now, there are no stakes for this tournament. That absolutely needs to change. And finally, let me just state, this is an announcement worth promoting. This is what Tony should have shared live on Dynamite last week as his big announcement, as opposed to, hey, by the way, all in, we're going to have a pre-sale. <laughs> that was endlessly mocked. Why the fuck didn't they announce this last Wednesday and instead randomly announce it during a taped collision on Saturday, as opposed to when they had an announcement promoted for a live Dynamite? That is just straight up nonsensical. Simple as that. On Rampage, Chris Jericho cut a promo on Konosuke Takeshka ahead of a match that wasn't even airing in AEW, but rather DDT in Japan. Don Callis then announced that he made a deal with Prince Nana to use Brian Cage for the promoted street fight for Dynamite because Sammy Guevara was not available. Then on Collision, Powerhouse Hobbs squashed a jobber with Paul White on commentary. White called him impressive. Callis then retold the entire storyline and told White to leave Jericho hanging so he didn't get hurt. Hobbs then threatened White but they all just walked away. Nothing extra. This is just stuff that happened. So let's move to the Golden Jets, Kota Ibushi, and Paul White against Takeshka, Hobbs, Kyle Fletcher, and Cage in a Like a Dragon Gaiden street fight on Dynamite. This was obviously a promotional match, which is fine, though the number of times they said it was patently ridiculous. Jericho and White wore suits to a street fight for some reason. White looked like a five-year-old in his because... The shirt sleeves were just so much longer than the jacket length. They scrunched up by the wrist. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. He chokeslammed Fletcher off a stage through a table and then literally just left through the stage 30 seconds later. I thought he was done. They had him do the chokeslam. The guy can't really move. Let's just get him off the screen. But instead, he ended up beating on Hobbs slowly in a parking lot. We eventually saw Hobbs body slam White off like a pallet of wood onto a car but it was really gnarly because he was supposed to slam him onto the front hood and he nearly missed it. He like clipped the side of it, but he seemed to be okay. Abushi then slowly rolled a bicycle down the ramp and like around the ring and he had a steel pipe in his hand and he lightly tapped people with them and they acted like he hit them with a weapon. The bike was fun. The pipe was maybe the worst part of the entire match. It was ridiculous. Takeshka used the bike as a weapon with Abushi taking a brain buster into it. Takeshka then jumped off a refrigerator into nothing, but got sprayed by a fire extinguisher and ate Judas effect on the concourse. Omega took a vertical suplex from off the ropes, from Cage really off the ropes, through two tables at ringside, which was a crazy spot. Fletcher then hit Abushi with a tombstone pile driver into a Japanese menu signboard that was on top of like six open chairs. Hobbs, ate two V-triggers and Judas Effect, he got duct taped to the top rope. Then they taped his mouth shut for really no reason whatsoever. Abushi recovered before Fletcher, even though Abushi was the one who took the pile driver and Fletcher was the one who delivered it. Cage ate two V-triggers and a one-winged angel with the faces winning the street fight. Now, there were definitely some notable spots here, no question. White being involved in this was a joke, but at least they took him out early and they did it in a spot to get Hobbs over. That's what we wanted when he was announced. Massive pet peeve for me, though. When a guy who takes a devastating move, Abushi, recovers faster than the guy delivering it, Fletcher. It happens all the time in AEW, and it is absurd. Neutralizing Hobbs in the finish was smart. Worst of all, though, because this was pretty good, I can't even make fun of it the way I did like 
Shazam Fury of the Gods leveling up the international title or this silly match with Jeff Jarrett. I was ready to like have fun and, and mock this. Look, sponsored matches are the way of the world now and we just have to kind of accept them. This was entertaining enough to be worthwhile, but it did kind of take up an immense amount of time on a go-home show that really should be building to a pay-per-view. I did like how they worked the sponsorship into this match. It's a game that really lent itself to a wrestling take. Much easier to do something like this than a sponsorship match for like Golden Corral or Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Mountain Dew or whatever the case. Really the only negative was it being on the go-home show plus Ibushi with the steel pipe that was ridiculous. 3.5 stars and a B. This was entertaining. By the way, an MJF and Jay White segment that we'll talk about later succeeded this as the main event of Dynamite. This street fight, though, should have closed the show with MJF White being like the mid-show main event. That was a very wrong decision when it came to like sketching out the show and what should have go on at what point. Because this was clearly a main event match with a main event finish and baby faces standing tall. It was a better way to end the show, or would have been a better way to end the show. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks fought Penta El Zero Miedo and Commander. Wasn't tough to figure out the booking here, given it was Penta and Commander, two guys who always lose on the other side. The Bucks shook their hands and super kicked their heads off. Commander did a sick move, jumping from the top rope literally onto Penta's shoulders, then falling forward for a double DDT on the Bucks. Truly cool. Penta then hit Made in Japan for a broken fall, plus Fear Factor on the ring apron. Nick then literally ran himself into the ring specifically to eat a Canadian destroyer where Commander ran off the top rope and jumped onto Penta's back first. It looked cool, but it was a total eye roll, like one of those things that ruins the suspension of disbelief because it was just so obvious. Nick then did a full kick low blow to both guys. Rick Knox, of course, wasn't looking, didn't see it. He then hit Penta with Judas Effect and then Commander ate BTE trigger for the finish. Such a tough match to critique because the Lucher side did a great job, inventive work, but it was choreographed to a ridiculous degree with a couple spots actually being nonsensical, as I mentioned. What was accomplished here was the Bucks going full heel, except for the fact that as they walked back up the ramp, Matt stopped for a child and signed his Jordan shoe. <laughs> like the, those things don't compute. So entertaining, yes, from a spot fest standpoint. A lot of it was frustrating, 3.5 stars in a B. On collision, Danny Garcia fought Andrade El Idolo. Garcia on Rampage wanted to bounce back from the MJF loss by fighting another top talent in Andrade. Interesting that he just gets to book whatever matches he wants. Hot and Flexible joined Andrade ringside with Miro watching backstage. Andrade hit the double jump moonsault. Garcia came back with some stiff strikes, but Andrade feigned a pump kick and hit the back elbow before winning with the figure eight. Hot and Flexible was super excited. They hugged. Miro laughed while watching backstage. So I guess Miro has no interest in legitimately and immediately kicking the shit out of Andrade like he did everyone else who almost was with Hot and Flexible. Fun match. Again, 3.5 stars B. Andrade is operating at a top tier level right now in the ring. Easily the best I've seen him work since he was NXT champion in that match with Johnny Gargano. It makes me real curious about his plans, whether he's still seeking to get out of AEW or if he's changed his mindset and wants to stay. I also wonder about where the Garcia stuff is going because now he's made two big challenges and he's lost both of them squeaky clean. In fact, there's another one coming up because on Dynamite, Miro said hot and flexible chasing fame and fortune will drag her under because it brings out the worst in both of them. He said he would take it out on Garcia. It was a good promo for Miro, but why is he fighting Garcia instead of Andrade? That's completely counter to the way that this storyline has progressed since it began. Hot and flexible 
considers managing someone. Miro beats them up a little bit. Then he squashes them in a match. But Andrade gets to walk out with her and hug her. And Miro not only doesn't attack him, but instead decides to fight his opponent who had nothing to do with Hot and Flexible. Make it make sense because it just doesn't make sense. On Collision, Dalton Castle fought Nick Wayne. Luchasaurus killed the boys at ringside. Distractions gave Wayne an opening for the worst eye poke I have ever seen in professional wrestling. Plus Wayne's world for the win. Why the fuck did this match happen? What was the point of doing it? Wayne didn't even get to look good. He needed to cheat to beat Dalton Castle. This was a total waste of time. Block at zero. On Rampage, Red Velvet fought Ruby Soho. A man brought down a bouquet of green spray-painted white roses for Ruby as she had control late in the match. She, of course, accepted them because why wouldn't someone in an active competition take random flowers? Velvet then hit Trouble in Paradise for the upset. It was obviously Angelo Parker sending the flowers, which was idiotic that he wasn't smart enough not to do it to disturb her match. Backstage, Soraya confronted uh, him about it as Parker macked on Soho and Daddy Magic agreed with Soraya that they have a problem. The flowers deal was moronic, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't find the story itself fun, especially the way Soraya and Daddy Magic reacted to this. But look what they're doing now. Like Soraya was just the women's champion. Daddy Magic and 2.0, they were in the JAS. Now Soraya, this is the storyline she's doing with Ruby. Ruby was challenging for all these titles. Now she's in a love angle. Maybe it's good and entertaining. I hope it is. And if so, I'll give it a break. On Rampage, Jeff Jarrett was angry that Jay Lethal was asked when he's getting his ROH title match. Jarrett said he embarrassed Eddie Kingston in the street fight and Lethal said he outclasses Kingston. Ortiz then approached and they threatened to jump him. So he swung first and got choked by uh, Satnam Singh on a road case. Obviously, I don't give a shit about this, but Ortiz is way more believable as a badass than Mike Santana, just by direct comparison. On Rampage, the kingdom beat something called Los Suavecitos in 45 seconds. Mike Bennett didn't even tag in when they did their two-on-one for the duration of the match. Roderick Strong cut a cheap heat promo on the Raiders leaving Oakland and said nothing else. Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. Strong then jumped out of his wheelchair for a backstabber before going back into it and getting his neck brace. Action Andretti and Dante Martin confronted later backstage, saying they won't be able to pull their shit against them. This was awful other than the finisher, which is a really cool assisted neck breaker out of a powerbomb called neck check. I, I did think that was cool, but that doesn't switch me from giving this a grade of zero point zero. And then on collision, Strong defeated Martin with the sick kick and end of heartache. Kingdom threw his neck brace back on and celebrated after the match. Kingdom then punched Martin in the nuts and hit a inverted, I guess, Meltzer driver. No idea why they've been using the Young Bucks move. Maybe it's something they've done before and I just don't know it, but it doesn't make any sense. Andretti made the save. So I guess they're going to do a tag team match that no one cares about on Friday or something like that. So that was everything on AEW this week that did not directly have to do with full gear. That leads us into our AEW full gear ultimate preview. There's only nine matches announced right now. I say only because usually these have like 14 or 15. I would not be surprised if at some point between the end of this podcast and the end of, I guess, Rampage is happening after Collision on Friday. There's like three or four more matches that are part of this card. Whether they matter or don't, we'll have to talk about Saturday night during our instant analysis. But let's go ahead and break down the nine matches that we do have. TBS Championship is going to be on the line. Chris Statlander defending against Julia Hart and Sky Blue. How did we get here? I will tell you. On Collision, Hart fought Willow Nightingale. Hart, in a big screen promo on the show, decided herself 
that she would have a number one contendership match against Nightingale, sounding like it was her idea. Then backstage, we learned Stat was set for a triple threat with two number one contendership matches, this being one of them. I don't really understand how that worked. Stat struggled massively through her promo here. Willow stood with Julia grasping her in Heartless and then pounced her. Willow missed a somersault into the steel steps, but hit a full Nelson slam for a false finish. Hart then landed seated on a powerbomb attempt, catching Nightingale from behind with a lariat and hitting a moonsault for the win. This was one of Julia's best matches, 3.25 stars and a B, and a women's match actually built around a storyline that made complete sense. It's not that difficult, and this proved as much. On Dynamite, we had Sky Blue against Red Velvet. Sky had colors beyond her dark blue in her eye makeup this week, and I think it's now about time I stop analyzing that because it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere, and I don't need to talk about makeup on this podcast. Velvet avoided Code Blue, but Sky caught her in a Casadora and countered her into a really cool side-twisting facebuster type of move called Skyfall. I know it has a technical name, but I don't know what it is. Uh, Velvet did a Casadora driver off the ropes, but Blue caught her and botched Code Blue for the win. The botch was disappointing because the rest of the match was really strong. This was maybe for me the best AEW women's TV match in quite some time. The crowd was hyped during the match, but basically had no reaction at all to the finish. Completely flat, very weird. Sky should 100% start using Skyfall as her finisher instead of Code Blue. There are too many women who botch Code Blue for that to be the finisher. So look, let's not get it twisted. Stats run with the TBS title has been a massive disappointment, like most AEW women's title reigns are. Almost entirely because of creative. She's been given half of one storyline. Maybe you can say this one's another, but it does feel kind of half-assed the way they did it. And other than that, She's just kind of existed beating a bunch of people for no rhyme or reason. Let's not forget, she's already beaten Sky Blue. She's already beaten Willow Nightingale for the title. She's already beaten Julia Hart. So now there's a triple threat involving two of them that she's already beaten. That's the story that they're telling here. Now, a good booker would recognize that Stats Reign is not going well, along with the fact that Hart is pretty much bubbling up with significant momentum from the crowd behind her, and they would change the title here. And it's my belief that the triple threat booking is for that exact reason. While normally, and this happened all the time with Jade Cargill, we would have a conversation and say, hmm, I wonder maybe they should change it here or it would make a lot of sense. She's built up well enough to win it. Nah, they won't do it because it's Jade. I don't believe that's gonna be the case with Stat. So I'm going to give Tony the benefit of the doubt that he realizes a change is needed and he needs to strike while the iron is hot with Julia. That's my prediction, a title change, heart pinning blue to win the TBS title. If it stays on stat, it's a mistake. Is it the end of the world? No, but they gotta get her involved in a truly meaningful storyline. And hopefully, heart beating Sky and stat, you know, not losing the title gives her reason to bubble up and go after heart in a longer term storyline where she actually wins the title back. Sting, Darby Allen, and Adam Copeland are gonna fight Christian Cage, Luchasaurus and Nick Wayne as what you would call a tune-up for the match. Sting, Darby, and Copeland fought Lance Archer and The Righteous on collision. Copeland got the hot tag and hit a double flying clothesline. He got all three guys outside for a triple tope suicida. Darby hit coffin drop on Archer outside. Sting fought The Righteous one-on-two with relative ease, hitting a stinger splash before Copeland hit a spear for the win. The Patriarchy, which is apparently the name of Christian's group now, stared them down after the bell. This was a fun TV main event, a good first look at what this trio is going to be ahead of full gear. The only negative is exactly what I said last week. The obvious expected result of Jake Roberts putting together a new group with no one involved in it ever booked as winners 
only for them to, you know, immediately lose in their first match. Like this is AEW and Tony Khan booking one-on-one. If you're going to put that group together, then put them together and allow them to go out and get a couple wins, not squash wins over jobbers, legitimate wins, build them into a trio, and then have Sting, Darby, and Copeland beat them, giving them confidence going into the Christian Luchasaurus and Nick Wayne match against the Patriarchy is what we can call them. Now, in terms of this match, look, you have Wayne in there ready and able to take the fall. Luchasaurus can definitely lose as well. You really don't want Christian Cage losing as TNT champion until he uh, loses the title itself. I mean, taking the actual fall in the match. Plus you have Sting, who I don't think has lost any type of match in AEW. Uh, he's also on his retirement run right now. So it's a very easy prediction. The baby faces go over with Sting, Darby, and Copeland beating Christian, Luchasaurus, and Wayne, what is now known as the Patriarchy, which by the way, is a good name for a group. And it's what I talk about all the time. If you're going to develop a group, whether it's an AEW, whether it's in WWE, whatever the case, create a name, maybe get some entrance music, some matching gear. There's a lot of different things you can do, but it all starts with a name. Speaking of a name, the Golden Jets will fight the Young Bucks. The Jets would get the Bucks guaranteed tag team title match if they win. However, if the Bucks win, the Jets will disband. On Dynamite, the Bucks were asked backstage why they cheated to win in their hometown. They said that they just don't give a damn. Omega confronted them and they said everyone knows that it's the best version of them basically being heels and the best version of Kenny as well. The Bucks clarified their beef is with Jericho, not Omega. And then when Chris entered the scene, Matt gave him an axe handle from behind. That got everyone fired up with the match actually picking up some heat compared to where it was left last week. This is actually one of the hardest to predict matches on the show because we don't know who the tag team champions are going to be. Coming out of full gear, that's a four-way match that we're going to discuss next. We also don't exactly know what the plans are in some other storylines involving like Hangman Adam Page, who's part of the elite, and what's going to happen there. Um, there could be a situation where all of them turn heel again. You have the Bucks win. Jericho, uh, not Jericho, sorry. Omega goes back with them. Hangman loses his match, goes heel. Now you have the elite all set as heels. Or um, the Young Bucks are out on an island the Jericho Omega team gets a tag team title match, but they're also both fighting against the Don Callis family. That is a storyline that is not concluded. There's just so many different ways this can go. And it's very obvious that this was a match just thrown onto the show to get these four guys wrestling in a match on pay-per-view. That's really it. I don't exactly know what they're going to do from a, a victory standpoint. It seems to reason that the Bucks going over the Jets, probably with Jericho taking the fall, is not necessarily the most likely outcome, but the easiest one to explain away because they do have that tag team title match. And I don't know that you really want to keep Jericho and Omega together so that they fight someone for the tag team titles, presumably lose, and then they're still dealing with the Don Callis family. I think you need Omega clear to go after Takeshka for World's End and, and wrap up that rivalry finally. So because of that, I'm going to pick the Bucks winning, but I'm not at all confident. If this was like a confidence pool, this would be maybe my lowest out of any pick on the entire show. The AEW Tag Team Championships will be on the line, as mentioned, in a fatal four-way. Ricky Starks and Big Bill, the champions against LFI, FTR, and Kings of the Black Throne. On Rampage, Starks fought Preston Vance. Big Bill jumped off commentary to distract Vance, with Starks hitting the spear for the win, and then they immediately attacked with LFI saving. Also on Rampage, FTR fought El Hijo del Vikingo and Commander. The Luchas hit stereo 450s in a nice spot. Commander later missed a high-risk move with FTR hitting Shatter Machine. 
for the win. Commentary could not decide whether it was Big Rig or Shatter Machine. And honestly, I forget which they prefer these days. Excellent wrestling match, bell to bell, four stars, A minus. There were no real stakes, but you knew the Luchas were losing the entire time. Despite that, it was a great clash in styles and Vikingo continues to impress when given chances. Maybe he'll be given wins one day, not just chances. House of Black fake clapped on the big screen after the bell. On Collision, LFI defeated the Workhorsemen in a real match that happened on television. Roosh hit bull's horns for the win. House of Black cut a promo on the big screen saying the enemy of their enemy is also their enemy. They challenged Starks and Bill for the titles. The champions later said they had no interest in fighting any of them, only to be told by the interviewer that there was going to be a four-way match for the titles. FTR later tried to piece it all together, reminding of all the storyline, like parts, I guess. FTR getting the shot makes sense. LFI and House of Black have done nothing to deserve it. Real strange. In terms of a prediction, this one could really go almost any way. I think if we're doing process of elimination, LFI is the lowest and has the least chance. I mean, they could use it, absolutely, but it doesn't really make much sense. Roosh and Preston Vance, I believe, are the ones that are competing. I could be wrong. It could be Drillistico. Maybe it is Drillistico, actually. Roosh and Drillistico. They're not really that solid of a tag team. It would be very similar to Starks and Bill holding the titles. FTR has already been champions multiple times. They seemingly lost the titles to Starks and Big Bill for no real reason. Kings of the Black Throne were trios champions. They had a good run, even though it was inconsistent. Do they need to be made tag team champion? Does that help anything or make sense with what they're doing? So I'm going to say no to King of the Black Throne or Kings of the Black Throne, which leaves Starks and Bill retaining or FTR winning. And man, it just feels like Drillistico is in this match to take the fall, right? And if he's going to be the one getting pinned, it could happen by either FTR or Starks and Big Bill. I'm going to go with FTR regaining the titles. It seems like they had given them up for injury reasons. And knowing Tony Khan historically, he goes back to his booking when it comes to titles. So it would make sense for him to go back to FTR being the stewards of the tag team division, especially if the Young Bucks are going to retain their number one contendership, or even if Omega and Jericho end up taking the number one contendership from them, that match versus FTR makes more sense than it does against Starks and Big Bill. I think they were kind of just temporary, I don't want to say transitional champions, but injury replacement champions. That's the way it feels to me. So again, FTR winning the AEW tag team titles is the prediction. The international championship will be on the line. Orange Cassidy defending against John Moxley in a rematch on Dynamite. Orange and Hook fought Mox and Wheeler Yuta. The faces attacked the heels in the crowd during their entrance. The intensity was between Orange and Mox with Cassidy uh, taking him out like form tackle style of the ring. Mox hit Hook with an RKO out of nowhere before no selling an orange punch. Yuta saved him from Red Rum with Mox hitting Death Rider and Yuta pinning Hook with the seatbelt. Mox, after the bell, said orange is nothing. He'll grind him into dust and course correct. The crowd was surprisingly muted for this match. I talked about Dynamite sucking from an audience standpoint. Uh, Three popular wrestlers in here. You would think they'd be all up, hyped out. I mean, the action was good. They didn't really care that much. I enjoyed the intensity uh, and the storytelling aspects of it leading into the pay-per-view. Now, the question here is whether Mox's statement was made because Orange is going to win in what is supposed to be a rousing moment or because Cassidy is going to undergo a character change after he drops the title a second time. He's already been headed in a more serious direction, but he probably needs that real inflection point to truly change. That was supposed to come when he dropped the international title, but you have to remember 
the original booking plan was for Mox to beat Ray Phoenix and just continue on as champion. So the question is, was Orange supposed to win the title back from him at this show? Or was this match never supposed to happen? And they booked it so that Mox wins the title back from Orange and they kind of just continue the storyline where they left off, except for the two months or however long of intermediate storytelling that they needed because Mox got concussed against Ray Phoenix. I say all of this because we know that Tony, I just mentioned this, rarely deviates from a booking plan to a fault, Jade Cargill being the most obvious example. Remember, the reason Orange has the title at all is he took it off Ray Phoenix, who only won it for Mox due to the concussion, as I mentioned, the improvisational call. Orange overcoming Mox here and continuing this title run, I think it's far less interesting than the alternative. Plus, AEW needs an injection of star power, and Mox carrying that title accomplishes that goal. The other matter to consider is that the next pay-per-view is only five or six weeks away, so they could easily do this as a trilogy. So with that, I am picking Mox to regain the international championship from Orange Cassidy. The women's championship will be on the line Hikaru Shida against Tony Storm. On Dynamite, Mariah May entered Tony's dressing room, I guess, uh, finally getting a chance to meet her as a huge fan. Storm was mostly passed out, but shook May's hand and asked Lutha to get her a tune-up match for Friday. So I guess we'll discuss that on Saturday's instant analysis because no idea who that's going to be or why it will matter. In terms of a match prediction, this is maybe the easiest of the entire show. Tony Khan is going to strike while the iron is hot with Tony Storm. Uh, and she is going to win the title off of Sheeta. Another disappointing title reign for Sheeta, but Tony is the hottest woman in the company right now. I say that from a standpoint of fan response, and she really should be the champion. This is a total no-brainer. The gimmick is working. It's getting massively over. You're now injecting Mariah May into it. She gets to be like the understudy eventually for Tony is seemingly where it's going to go, and you need Storm to be the champion parading around with a title for all of this to make sense. Storm beats Sheeta, becomes the new AEW Women's Champion. Hangman Page will fight Swerve Strickland in a Texas death match. On Collision, Hangman cut a passionate taped promo on Swerve, saying Strickland pissed him off so much by visiting his home that it's now going to be a death match. Page talked about putting Swerve in the ground and pissing on his grave. It was extremely strong by Hangman. I do need to comment on this death match stipulation. This is supposed to be used at the end of an absolute blood feud. And while this is certainly intense enough, to justify it, the stip does feel forced because it's Hangman. This is his fourth death match in 21 months. That's once every five months, basically. People would go wild if WWE, let's say, ran Hell in a Cell every five months with the same guy always fighting in it. And by the way, winning. Pages 3-0 in these matches. On Dynamite, there was a face-to-face confrontation with a six-week suspension threatened if they touched. Hangman called Swerve a coward and a fraud who is dumber today than when he got fired two years ago. It's not his fault he got fired. Just a WWE reference to get an ooh from the crowd. Page said Swerve isn't a man, which is why his fiance left him and his kids won't talk to him. It got hot at that point. He threw the mic, then he picked it back up and he rightly pointed out he's not allowed to touch Swerve, but no one said anything about Prince Nana. So he said he'd execute Swerve and steal Nana's weed, random, and then he attacked Nana. Swerve couldn't help him, but security came down and then Page took them out. Interesting that Swerve didn't get a chance to speak here. Very similar to a promo that happened early in this feud where Swerve spoke and Page never got a chance to speak. Extremely solid from Hangman. He was totally cooking here. Really, the WWE line was the only part that didn't make much sense, but that's typical AEW using the other company to get heat. I wish Hangman got the chance 
to cut promos like these when he was actually the champion. You know what I mean? Imagine how much better and how much more interesting his reign would have been if he got to speak like this. So we're left to wonder whether Page loses his first death match in AEW and comes out looking pathetic after making statements to this degree on consecutive shows while Swerve goes up 2-0 and gets retribution for these comments, or Hangman backs up his word, remains undefeated in death matches, and makes Swerve look pathetic because he just got railroaded on the mic and then possibly in the ring as well. This is a really tough one to predict for that reason, especially because we still have three hours of TV on Friday and Swerve could definitely get back at Hangman on the mic. So I'm gonna make a pick now, but I may switch it Friday on our go-home show on buymeacoffee.com slash over because this really feels like it should be a trilogy, but in a trilogy, the death match should be the last match. That is what makes the whole thing odd. So I'm gonna treat it as if the death match is the end of the feud. And I'm gonna pick Hangman winning here. And maybe they do a third match at World's End and maybe that's a number one contendership for a title or some other type of booking that makes sense to do a match after a death match. Otherwise, if Swerve goes up 2-0, he should be challenging for the title on that show, even despite all the ongoing MJF storylines. Hangman would also have nowhere to go if he loses this and they don't do a third match unless he's straight up turning heel. So I'm gonna start by picking Hangman, but like I said, I may change this up on Friday, about 24 hours out from the show. The ROH Tag Team Championships will be on the line. MJF and a partner to be announced, it seems, although I guess he could do it as a handicap match, going up against the guns. Samoa Joe squashed a jobber with a coquina clutch on Dynamite, then grabbed the mic and again offered friendship to MJF. The funny part here was Joe doing the walk away when the jobber tried to splash him, and midair, the guy just reacted. He's like, oh, I'm fucked. And he gave a face and it was just really funny. The guns later squash some jobbers in 30 seconds. They tried and failed to get heat with a short promo afterward. The guns come across to me like little brothers so excited to say guns up in two words for you, while the other guys in Bullet Club are like relatively cool, normal people. This segment was ridiculous for me and just a total waste of time with the guns. That is one big pile of shit. And again, when it comes to predicting this match, I don't know whether MJF is going to have a partner or not. If he doesn't have a partner, and this is straight up two-on-one, and Juice Robinson is ringside, then I'm picking the guns to walk out as the ROH tag team titles. Adam Cole gets to be angry at MJF, or maybe understanding as a friend, and they continue that storyline. If MJF ultimately succumbs and just says, you know what, Samoa Joe, please be my partner here, then I think they retain the titles. It's MJF and Samoa Joe against the guns. It wouldn't really make sense for that not to be the case. So it's two predictions, but it's only because I don't know what is gonna happen. I would guess if I have to predict the storyline as well, then the storyline I predict is that Samoa Joe does team up with him and they retain the titles and MJF has to defend the title against Samoa Joe, maybe I guess on an upcoming Dynamite or something like that. The AEW Championship will be the main event. MJF against Jay White. On Dynamite, Roddy backstage FaceTimed Adam Cole, saying he knows for sure who the devil is. Strong said it's definitely MJF. Cole said it's definitely not MJF, and it might be Strong. Roddy said on his life it's MJF, and Cole hung up on him. Wardlow later got a promo package where he beat the shit out of a guy in the ring while talking shit to MJF, saying he'd take him out and make the devil his bitch. Then the devil flashed on the screen again. On Dynamite, MJF closed the show with an in-ring promo saying he clearly can't outrun his past. He apologized to Acclaim for getting caught up in the crossfire. He said the air atop the mountain is thin, and while he's afraid of losing everything and letting the fans down, 
It'll take an army to eliminate him. MJF then turned to White, saying neither White nor anyone can beat him. Then he turned to the devil mask, basically talking to the camera, promising to find him with hell to pay. White came out saying MJF is trying to be the hero, but he's always been the villain. And he said that many times before. White said MJF knows his days are numbered and Bullet Club Gold then attacked him from behind three on one. MJF got strikes on them, but then he celebrated. And when he came down from celebrating, got blindsided by Juice. He ate 310 to Yuma and Blade Runner. Uh, Juice then counted one, two, three as White pinned MJF to end the show. And Joe was watching backstage, just kind of snarling. So I was asking myself afterward, would this segment on Dynamite or the show as a whole have gotten me to buy the pay-per-view? And my answer to that was no. The Hangman Swerve segment and storyline is better than this. MJF's promo was relatively paint by numbers. The overdone baby face shtick, it almost makes me feel like we're getting a swerve with MJF. Maybe he actually is the devil. I keep going back and forth on that aspect, but I don't have much confusion over my prediction for the match itself because stuff could happen after the match, during the match, whatever. I have MJF retaining the title here. He has too many challengers, too many different angles involving him. World's End next month is in his hometown. The only other way that could transpire is if White wins and MJF drops the title and over the next you know four weeks, he deals with all these other storylines. Then he gets a rematch and wins his title back at World's End. But don't forget, he's also simultaneously doing the War of 2024 storyline and World's End is on the 30th. And that could very much be like, the CM Punk angle of, you know, he walks out with the title and leaves the company. And it, it felt like they were going to do that when MJF was a heel, but now he's a baby face. And obviously the CM Punk thing isn't happening. They're using Jay White in that place. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I think it would be silly for MJF to lose the title and then get a rematch one month later. So I have MJF retaining the title. The real question is whether we get the devil and acolytes being unveiled whether they get involved in the finish and who they are. I don't think they're going to get involved in the finish. I pretty much believe MJF will beat White and maybe because of the friendship with Samoa Joe, if he does use him for the ROH tag team title match, maybe Joe gets his back and helps even the sides. He, he negates Juice Robinson and the guns and that allows MJF to go and beat White clean. And then after all of it's over, there's a couple options that could happen. I mean, Joe could be revealed as the devil this entire time with everyone else's henchmen. But other than that, maybe the devil and the henchmen appear and take out Joe. And then they attack MJF and do the reveal to end the show. They could also have the entire thing continue all the way to world's end. And I would say if it goes past this show, then there are much greater chances that it's one of the recent WWE releases under the mask, such as a Dolph Ziggler. That would make a lot of sense. But if they unveil it at World's End, I believe all their, again, they're not non-competes, but all their contracts where they're getting paid, they're still under that 90 days, I think, until the first week of December. So they can't exactly unveil that person here unless they decided to give up their money, uh, some of their money, and leave WWE early, which 99 times out of 100, the talent doesn't do that because you're getting paid not to work. So, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to approach this. If the devil and the acolytes or the henchmen, whatever you want to call them, are unveiled, it feels to me like it might be something. And there's so many different names that I could throw out and we could discuss. But like Jack Perry 
is the devil. And Roderick Strong and the kingdom are among his acolytes, maybe with Wardlow as well. And the angle for that is that Roddy and the kingdom saw that Cole does not have their best interests in mind. He cares more about MJF than them. So even though they're still trying to keep Adam close, they're actually turning on him and siding with someone else, Jack Perry, who actually is their friend, let's just say as an example. And Wardlow obviously wants the retribution on Max. So, you know, he has every reason in the world to be part of that group. And then you have MJF kind of on his own. Maybe Samoa Joe is with him. Maybe he's not in the near future. Um, And MJF loses the title eventually. I don't know when that would be. And ultimately, Adam Cole returns. They team up again. And they take down Jack and the kingdom and whatever faction this is. And again, you can do a very similar angle with like Dolph Ziggler in as the devil and pretty much do the exact same thing. Um, there's other names that you could throw in there. MJF being the devil is a legitimate possibility that he's been doing this. You know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is making the world believe it didn't exist and making everyone think he's a baby face, but he's been doing this the entire time. It just doesn't seem like it's him. Uh, I, I would say the way it's being booked, you have to remember the only time the devil was physically present at something was the first time it showed up. He attacked Bullet Club Gold heals. And then every other time he's been on camera, that kind of lends itself to being Adam Cole, who's not been able to show up at Dynamite physically, right? But I also think that Cole, and I've seen some people speculate, it's Britt Baker under the mask. And to me, that's just kind of an eye roll. Like if you're gonna do an Adam Cole turn on MJF, he needs to be healthy and able to fight him. You do that turn and Cole, then the next month has a pay-per-view match and beats him for the title. You don't do it if the guy's legitimately injured and it does seem like he's legitimately injured. So that's why I take Cole out of the running. Therefore, Britt Baker as well. Although she's been off TV and like, I, I could imagine Britt leading a bunch of men being an interesting storyline. Jack would be, you know, interesting to a degree. We could see if he could get it over, but real lackluster. I think AEW would get clowned for that. Dolph would make a ton of sense because he could sell being a devil like no one's business but there's just so many different ways to do it. So if I had to make a prediction, I'll say Jack Perry and the group that I told you previously. And I do think that they get unveiled in the main event. That is what I believe after the match is over. Lastly, before we get to our pre-show expectation grade here, there was an announcement from Tony Khan. I know, I roll, whatever, but this was a pretty decent announcement that there is going to be a signing on full gear. The exact terminology is that AEW has agreed to terms with one of the world's best wrestlers a pro who is known and respected by virtually every AEW fan, they'll come to LA to sign their contract this Saturday. So in terms of options for who this is, Mercedes Monet makes the most sense for a couple of reasons. One, he used the word they as opposed to he. Two, it's Los Angeles, and we know she's all about the star power and Hollywood and all that type of stuff. I, I've continued to hear that she's been hesitant about signing a deal for more than a number of dates, but maybe something changed there. Kota Ibushi was announced as All Elite after Dynamite, which, duh. But I'm curious to see how often they use him now and if it's only alongside Omega, so obviously he's not gonna be this signing. V. Kingo is another option for this announcement, but he's been on AEW TV so frequently that it seems like he's already signed 
So the announcement wouldn't necessarily be groundbreaking or worth making a big announcement of. Ziggler could be considered based on the criteria, but I feel like that would have leaked because it would require him to end his WWE payments early and WWE certainly would leak that that's the case and ruin the surprise. Will Ospreay is probably the lead option. His deal with New Japan is not up until the start of 2024, but it's possible they came to an arrangement where they could announce his signing early. Osprey has mentioned WWE a couple times recently, but to me that always came across like a high school recruit mentioning rival programs of the team that he's ultimately gonna commit to just to kind of troll them. I would not be shocked at all if Tony Khan had Osprey mention WWE in interviews or say, yo, yeah, I'm definitely considering them. That way it looks like AEW gets a win over them when maybe WWE never had much of a chance at all. The same thing is ongoing with MJF's War of 2024 deal. He's already re-signed with AEW or already promised to re-sign with AEW because he is not being booked this way only to leave in six weeks for WWE. No fucking chance. It's almost kind of insulting the way MJF talks about his free agency as if there's any way he leaves when there's just not. And it's just gonna be a big boon. Oh, AEW kept MJF. WWE really wanted him, but AEW kept him. So ultimately, I think it should be Monet. And that would be my prediction based on the use of they and it being done in Hollywood and all that. But it does seem like everyone's talking about Osprey being the option. So I'm gonna go with what people are saying as it being Osprey, even though, again, I repeat, Monet makes the most sense, but I did hear that she only wants to work dates and not years. So that would make sense where she wouldn't sign a contract. The other thing they could do is have like Osprey come out, sign, and then Monet interrupt saying he's not as big of a deal as I am and it would make her look really big. So they could do a double signing, very similar to the way they debuted Brian Danielson and Adam Cole back to back. They could do something like that, but we will find out Saturday night. So that, folks, was your ultimate preview for AEW Full Gear. That leaves us with our expectation grade for the show. I do think it's strong. There is a chance for it to be an extremely good card between the Devil Reveal, uh, awesome main event, MJF and Jay White should be a banger, Swerve Strickland and Hangman Adam Page, that should be a banger as well. Outside of those items, I really don't care much for the rest of the show. Like Storm is a no-brainer for me. Orange and Mox, we've already seen it and we know what that match is going to be. I don't care about either of the tag team matches, the six man nor the TBS title match. So there's just a lot on the card that is not speaking to me, but I do think match quality will deliver and therefore it'll exceed a B and be in that B plus range. Again, all of you will get an opportunity to provide your pre-show expectation grade for AEW Full Gear. All you need to do is follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can vote in a poll before the show begins, and you can also provide your post-show grade as soon as AEW Full Gear ends by voting in the poll, once again, on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. So with that, let's wrap up today's show. We will be back Saturday night with your AEW Full Gear instant analysis, and then on Tuesday with your WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview. You do not want to miss any of that. You already know how to find us on Twitter, so allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. We need you to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And on Apple, if you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget, I happen to love the number... 
five. And I hope you do as well because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up. You will get bonus audio, including a fastest five minutes in professional wrestling. Go home show for AEW full gear on Friday night, along with your instant reaction to SmackDown on Friday night, two separate fastest five minute shows. And you also get exclusive news posts every single Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Vintage Chris Vanini will be with us on Saturday night for the AEW Full Gear Instant Analysis. And of course, again on Tuesday for the WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview. But at this point, it is time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.